So, hey, Colin, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad to be able to talk with you today. Yeah. Totally. So you've started a kind of secular church. Would you would you call it a religion or a church or is there a difference to you? Yeah, I would call it a religion. Um, that term certainly makes some people a little bit uncomfortable, um, even for a lot of the people that participate. Uh, there's been a lot of debate over the years of whether or not we should call ourselves a religion. Um, I think at this point, I've kind of gotten everyone on board with why I'm calling it a religion. Um, but uh, it's still something that sometimes throws people off when they first encounter us. Um, we're defining religion in a more anthropological way than I think is used in common conversation, where we're saying that this is a set of philosophies that are also coherent with traditions and rituals and symbology that's actively being practiced by a community. So it's more than just a philosophy. It's more than just a club. I think it is religion, but it doesn't have anything to do with God or supernatural powers. Cool. And just at the top, what's the name of it and how can people find out more about it? Sure. Yeah. So it's called Aratanism is the name of the religion. And the main organization by which we're doing Aratanism is called the Assemblage of Arate. So you can find more about it uh, on our website, www.aratanism.org. Um, Aratanism is kind of a hard word, I think, for a lot of uh, English speakers. So that's A-R-E-T-E-A-N-I-S-M is Aratanism. Uh, it comes from the Greek word arate, which is the word for the virtue of being excellent in all ways that a thing or, or that anything, including a person, can be excellent. It's kind of like the old army slogan of, uh, slogan of uh, be all you can be. That's basically what arate is, is, being all that you can be, you know, you as you, me as me, us as, you know, a group of people together in all ways that we can possibly be awesome. That's what we want to be. This is, this is cool. So the reason I wanted to talk to you is because um, I'm writing a lot about loneliness recently, and it's something that I've been interested in for a very long time. And one of the suggestions that I had for people who uh, either feel lonely or just want to have more connections or to deepen their connections, but especially to meet new people, was to go to church. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I grew up Southern Baptist um, in the deep South and I was in church, you know, three times a week, Bible camp, like all that, like deep into it. And I haven't been in a long time um, to, to any kind of church, but I actually went to one of the churches that I attended a lot in middle school with my um, sister recently and I had to leave like during the sermon, I was so angry. I just, I just got up and left. And so, um, it's also something that I, when I was in San Francisco, I was part of the sex positive community in San Francisco. And, you know, when I would talk to other people, especially people in leadership about what I wanted the community to look like, I used the um, analogy of church. Like I wanted, I wanted our community to, to function more like church, especially in the, you know, taking care of each other uh, way. And, especially because I, I do feel like our community did take care of each other, but it was a little bit ad hoc. Whereas mm. I feel like churches will often have like a sign up sheet or like roles and responsibilities that are like more clearly delineated, which I think can be really helpful, especially for people who maybe neurodivergent or like are less able to go based on like, you know, vibes who like kind of want things spelled out for them. Um, so 
Yeah, I was just kind of curious about like, from my perspective, like I totally get like why you would want to create like a secular church or a non-superstitious superstitious religion. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear like your journey, like where did this start? Um, so just pick it up wherever, wherever you'd like to. Sure. Yeah. Uh, boy, I uh, empathize greatly with the things you've described so far. Um, yeah, it is tough. I think that we're living in an age um, where we're experiencing this phenomenon that I call fracturing, um, which is the fracturing of social connections, both at the micro scale and at the macro scale, that uh, individual social connections are um, weakening compared to all previous eras, I think, um, but also nation states and their interactions with each other, you know, that uh, even the, the strength of the states themselves, that's also fracturing, that we're having this fracturing at, fracturing at, at all levels. And, uh, and it's useful to put in some effort to try to attend an actual organized thing and, and to put some strength back into these institutions. But it's difficult when those institutions have got a lot of toxicity in them, um, when there's a lot of things that really weren't uh, put there with any intention, and now we're experiencing some really negative consequences from these things. Um, so yeah, I think that we need alternatives, and that's what we're trying to provide. So to answer your question, though, of uh, you know my, my journey with this, where did this come from? Um, I guess the story really starts with the fact that I grew up Mormon um, uh, or LDS, Latter-day Saint, uh, as they prefer to be called these days. Um, and I was a true believer for a very long time. Um, that was something that was very, very important to me. Um, I, I really was uh, 100% on board with the program, so to speak. Um, I went and served the Mormon mission for two years. For those that might not be familiar, uh, you know, that's the annoying guys in suits that come around and knock on your door and ask you if you want to hear about the Book of Mormon. Um, yeah, I did that for two years in Connecticut and Rhode Island. Um, and actually, it was a great experience. I, I really loved it. That had been my life goal for a very, very long time. Um, you know, basically, as long as I can remember, that's what I wanted to do was to be a missionary. And um, I really made the most of that experience in a lot of ways. So so while I no longer uh, agree with uh, those things that I was teaching, I don't actually have a whole lot of regrets from the experience of going. So if we flash forward a little bit, um, while I was a missionary, uh, my family apostatized from the, from the LDS church. Uh, they decided that they no longer believed, uh, that they thought it was all a bunch of hogwash. Um, and they also moved uh, while I was a missionary, you know, so... When, I, when my time was up, missions are done two years to the day. When, when my time was up, I went home to a new city and to a family that had rejected uh, the religion that I had been out there trying to convert people to. So that was a pretty intense transition for me. I mean, even just going from being a missionary to not is a pretty intense transition. Um, you know, that's a culture shock on its own. So I was kind of getting culture shock times three. Um, and that was a real challenging process, but I'm glad that it happened because it ultimately encouraged me to deconstruct my own beliefs and to think a little bit more critically about how I had been raised. And so there was some stubbornness involved, I think, in part because of how vociferous my, my family was of saying that you should leave, you should stop being a missionary. You know, I was saying, no, 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 this is who I am. I'm, I'm going to stick to this. Um, but three years later, I ended up leaving the Mormon church on my own accord um, after having really thought it through quite quite intensely for myself. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that at that point, I went through a stage of being something of a militant atheist for a little while, which I think is a fairly common experience for people that go through some sort of deprogramming, uh, or I, I, 
I should, I should be more charitable and say deconstruction, <laughs> but I, I think you can kind of see what I feel about it, you know, deprogramming. Um, uh, yeah, going through that deconstruction experience, um, coming out of something, particularly an intense form of Christianity like, like Mormondom, um, I imagine similar coming from a Southern Baptist uh, background. Uh, I, I definitely had a, a phase where I was uh, really just very anti-religion, very anti anything that had even the whiff of that kind of behavior. So, um, so I apologize for not making this story shorter, but the, but the, the next step is that um, I, after kind of meandering for a little while, um, I think in part from just how discombobulated my return from being a Mormon missionary was, uh, I finally got my life back on track by joining the United States Marine Corps. So uh, I did that for five years. Um, so I was quite a bit older than most recruits are when I joined the Marine Corps. Um, and that was definitely a significant part of my experience was just being uh, a little bit more mature. I won't say mature, but a little more mature than most of my cohort. Um, and uh, and that was that was its own really interesting kind of religious experience. You know, that Marine Corps is very, very rigid. Um, there's a common joke out there that uh, there's only one um, actual branch of the military because the Air Force is a corporation and the Navy is a cruise ship and the Marine Corps is a cult. You know, that last bit of Marine Corps being a cult, it's kind of true. <laughs> um, so so I, I went from one cult to another cult. <laughs> um, and while I was deployed to Afghanistan, I had the unique opportunity to be looking at America from afar. Um, and I really love my country quite deeply. Um, you know, that's something that I've also been working to kind of deconstruct what is my relationship with the United States. Um, try to deconstruct everything in my life. But uh, but I still, I really have a very deep love of country. Um, at this point, I think I've expanded to having a, having a deep love of the world, but I, I do love my country. And, and being away from it, 2013 to 2014, and looking, looking at what the state of the United States was from afar, and in particular, looking at things like politics, but also just sort of society and the way people were behaving and the way that social media was changing things, um, I came to the deep-seated con deep conclusion that America was ill, um, that our country was really quite sick on a sociological level. Um, and that was really painful for me as someone who loves, you know, I mean, it's, it's like seeing a loved one have cancer or something like that. You know, I, I'm looking back at my country and I'm now getting the perspective to understand just how sick it is. And so I started to think, what can be done? You know, is there anything that can be done to save save our country, or or is there nothing left but despair? So um, I've had the good fortune of studying a lot of history in my uh, academic education, and uh, so I turned to history to say, you know, are there examples of solutions? Um, are there times in history where a nation was kind of on one track and then they made an abrupt ninety degree turn? You know, uh, when has that ever happened, if ever? And it has happened. It's actually happened kind of a bunch of times, but it's really only happened under two circumstances. Uh, when the nation gets conquered or when the nation uh, develops a new religion for itself. And uh, I'm not really interested in being conquered. So, <laughs> so that kind of opened my mind up to, well, okay, I hate religion, but maybe, maybe I should consider the possibility that maybe what we need is religion. And uh, the more I started to think about that, more, uh, the more I talked about it with other people, uh, the more other people convinced me that I was maybe in a unique position with some of my life experience 
growing up Mormon, being a Mormon missionary, having the military background, uh, a lot of the other jobs I've done, a lot of the other travel that I've done, education I've had, et cetera. But maybe I was in sort of a unique position to, to start something that could actually be a new religion for the future. And so that, that's kind of its own whole process. Uh, I'll, I'll breathe here and give you a second to, to jump in. I realize I've been rambling. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'd say that I started thinking about the need for a religion in 2014. And then uh, I finally became convinced that this was something that needed to happen and that maybe I should do in 2015. And then the beginning of 2016 uh, is when I finally got convinced to actually take action. to not just agree it was a good thing that I should do, but to actually start doing it. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so it was yeah, 2015 to 2016 was, was the design process for the, for the bulk of what is now Arcanism. 2016 is when it went live. Um, so it's been growing for almost seven years at this point. Um, there's definitely been a lot of changes along the way. I expect there will be a lot more changes to come, but that's that's the story of our history in a nutshell. So uh, let me uh, turn the time back over to you. Yeah, there's a lot I feel like I can relate to in that story. I feel like certainly growing up evangelical, certainly preaching the gospel, certainly being super nationalistic and patriotic, um, and then becoming very disillusioned with my country after learning more. Um, I mean, I just went to college. I didn't, I didn't go to Afghanistan, but um, fuck, uh, that's an intense bunch of stuff that you've had to go through, but I'm glad that you landed where you are I mean I don't know it's obviously like so I'm kind of interested in like two branches of inquiry one would be how do you not become a cult leader you know do something that's going to be harmful and then how do you and I guess this is like two sides of the same coin is like but then also how do you how are you or how do you plan to go out and preach unto all people like how do you get new converts like what's the plan for growth because I mean the thing that's so brilliant and insidious about religion is like what sucks about it is is the growth mechanism right like when you talk about you know you have to infect other people with this mind virus or they and you are going to spend an eternity in torment it's motivating (laughs) (laughs) um So without that kind of carrot and stick, like, uh, you know, what what's the plan? Yeah, I guess that's, so it'll be a two-part question. What's the plan for getting people on board? And then what are the safeguards for not having this to be something that, and even if you have all the best intentions, like, you know, gets out of your control or, you know, you get too much power and you get corrupted or, you know, any of the things that happen to religions. Yeah, uh, these are really great questions. Um, if you don't mind, I think I'll start with the question of the safeguards, and then we'll talk sure. about the growth uh, second. Um, so this was a really key concern for me. This was, you know, a huge part of what I had to get over between concluding that America maybe needed a religion in 2014 and in 2015, saying, "Okay, I'll work on designing one." Was was convincing myself that maybe that there would be a safe way to do this. Um, one of the things that we say quite a lot uh, in our community is that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that that's really so much of what 
what we've been trying to do is to find what are the good parts, leave behind the bad parts. Um, I think that for some of the initial design process, you know, as I, as I approach this question, um, I, I was thinking quite a lot about how do I make a religion that, that doesn't suck? And then I had a little bit of a brainwave about halfway through the process where I realized I was kind of asking the wrong question, but really the more important question is how do I make a religion that is great? Um, and that if I make a religion that is great, by default, it won't suck. Um, and so I, I, I need to worry less about it not sucking and worry more about it being awesome. Um, one of our fundamental principles, we call it our zeroth tenet of arcanism, is do not do not. So uh, that's to focus on what we want rather than focusing on what we don't want. Because there's a bajillion different ways to, to avoid things that we don't want, but that can easily just lead you into something else that is also not good. Um, so focusing on what you do gonna, want. Yeah, like, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to do that. And I'm sorry. But um, I... That's something that occurred to me at some point as I was deconstructing is that I heard so many people in church, in leadership, growing up saying, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never had a drink of alcohol. I've never done any drugs. Like, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never had premarital sex. And I'm like, and? Like, what is that doing for the world? How does it right. help me that you've never had a drink? Like, this is not what ethics should be this is not what anyone should aspire to is what you haven't done mm -hmm. um it's so like small and selfish and narrow and stupid so i love that like let's do like let's not focus on what we're not doing let's focus on what we're what change we're making in the world how we're helping people how we're making the world a better place i love that Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that you're right that 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 uh, oh, I haven't done this. I haven't done that is a very egocentric way of thinking about the world. Um, and we really want to get to sort of higher levels of consciousness that are including more and more people in our perspective, um, you know, as we make decisions, um, recognizing that we are connected uh, to everyone, including past, present and future. Even, um, you know, I think that when we're informed by those connections, we, we make better actions and that includes directing ourselves more in that do and not do not uh, um, uh, sort of sort of mentality. So yeah, so, so, so that was a big paradigm shift for me in the creation process was to focus on do. Um, there are of course exceptions, we can talk about that in a moment, but you know, there, there are exceptions and we're very cognizant of the way that we might have exceptions. Um, but as a, as a fundamental rule, you know, the, the philosophy that we want to follow is that do not do not. So the other things that I think really matter in terms of uh, safety mechanisms is um, really being very intentional with the philosophical core. Um, so, so aside from our zeroth tenant of do not do not, we have three core tenants. And, and I'd say that these three tenants are essentially the three safety mechanisms. So, so the first one is be people of arte. That means be as excellent as you can possibly be, um, both individually and communally. And so having a very strong philosophical basis in that, I think, is an important safety mechanism. That if you are seeking to be the best person you can be, if you're seeking to be the best group of people that you can be, that right there does a lot to avoid problems that, you know, it, uh, it teaches genuine humility to be willing to take correction and to make uh, course adjustments as you go on um, that we don't care about adhering to some, you know, concept of an ancient tradition. 
what we care about is being awesome and uh, we will make whatever changes are necessary to be awesome. The second one is seek greater understanding and specifically endorsing the scientific method as the best way of seeking greater understanding. And so that applies both to the physical world, you know, that if you're trying to understand whether or not the earth is flat or not, the best way to find that out is through scientific interrogation. And uh, lo and behold, it's not flat. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, but also that applies to our personal lives as well, that if you're trying to figure out what the best way to live as a human being, and specifically to live as you, uh, not just a generic human being as yourself, uh, the best way to approach that is, again, scientific investigation, um, evidentiary-based, uh, using logic and rigor. Um, this is actually a much better way of approaching these kinds of questions. So. So that, that in turn um, helps us adhere closer to reality. And I think that that is another really important safety mechanism that all of our doctrines we feel are scientifically validated by the scientific process. If it ever comes out that they're not as validated as, that, as we thought they were, then we will change our doctrines to make them more scientifically validated. Um, so yeah, I think that being in touch with reality um, really, really matters. Uh, I've come to really love this new internet expression of touch grass. Um, and sometimes people are using that sort of as a pejorative of like, oh, you should touch grass. We have started as a community telling each other that, you know, we should touch grass. And we, we say it as kind of a loving thing that like, yes, go touch some grass. Um, and we, we actually even mean it kind of literally uh, that, you know, I think there was real value in going out and, and physically touching some blades of grass to get that better connection to nature. But I'm getting sidetracked. The point is, is being in adherence with actual observable reality is an important safety mechanism. And then the third safety mechanism is our third tenant, which is the intent of the law is the law. And so that means that uh, rather than having dogmatic prescriptions for anything, um, we trust in the human capacity for reason. We trust in your human capacity for reason to make decisions for your life. So we don't have thou shalt or thou shalt nots. Um, we, or, or we really don't have thou shalt nots. Um, I guess you could say we have thou shalt, like be a person of arte, I guess is a thou shalt. But the, the point is, is that how you do that uh, is going to be up to you. And we have, you know, more doctrines that we use to help specify this. We have a whole six qualities of arte and 30 aims of arte and all of these things. But, um, but you're the one that's going to have to make the decision of how to apply these things. And no one, not me, not, you know, a fellow person in the congregation, no one can tell you what the right interpretation is. That, that's for you to decide. So, so I think that, that that trusting people to make different decisions, that your decisions legitimately do not have to be the same as my decisions, that's another really important safety mechanism for why I was willing to put this into the world um, and sort of take the risk of like, what if this goes, goes off the rails one day? I, I think that these safety mechanisms will do a great job of preventing it from going off the rails. Yeah, I think that's good. I think um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is um, there is a sexual abuse scandal rocking the Southern Baptist Church, particularly churches within the Southern Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist Convention leadership covering for known sexual abusers. Um, and it is reminding me of so again, my time in the sex positive community in San Francisco, and um, obviously like as people who host sex parties, we had to deal with um, 
what we would term consent violations. And so these could range from touching someone without um, express permission to, you know, a violent uh, rape. And, you know, there, there was a process, right, where, you know, there, everyone who attended any of our parties was consent trained. Um, everyone who attended the parties knew who to get in touch with if a consent violation happened. Um, there was a process for basically adjudicating uh, accusations of consent violations. Um, there was a process for dealing with people who were found to have committed consent violations, yada, yada. It's occurring to me that like every group needs this because consent violations are obviously not uh, limited to sex parties. Um, and they're not limited to sex either. Um, and so I'm just curious about like, I think like what, what I, what I want to see is in every organization and sure as fuck the Southern Baptist church is like, have these policies and procedures in place, like consent train everyone in your organization, have a Mm -hmm. reporting process that everyone knows what it is, have it be transparent, um, have a process for dealing with people who violate consent. Um, Yeah, and so I'm curious about what you guys have set up in terms of, I guess that's like a very like long-winded way of asking like, what's your accountability process? Because yeah, like obviously like be excellent to each other is like a great, it's not a safeguard though, you know? Um, Safeguards are in in, like accountability and and things like that. Yeah, uh, well, so, Consent is one of our core doctrines. Um, I have to admit, I don't know if we have gotten that uh, updated on the website. Um, consent has always been something that we have very actively talked about in our community, but it was, it's only been sort of like explicitly recognized as like, oh yeah, this really is one of our core doctrines. It, that's only been this year that we've sort of made that formal acknowledgement. And I don't know that that has actually trickled up to the website yet. Um, but it is it is one of our formal core doctrines is the concept of consent. And so everything, not just sexual consent, but every element of participation in our community is very consent focused and um and you know part of our uh the way that we practice in terms of meeting as a church so to speak is educating kind of like sunday school except on our hand ideas and so that includes education on consent and so i think that's a that's an important thing but the accountability is a separate part and i'm glad that you brought that up because i agree that accountability has to be there too and that is part of why we do have the assemblage organized in a hierarchical manner. Um, I think that there's been really great uh, talk in the last couple of decades now about sort of deconstructing the value of hierarchies that I think that for so long people just assumed that hierarchies were the way to do things. And we've had some really good conversation as a society now about how some of the ways that hierarchies can fail, some of the ways that hierarchies can tend to certain kinds of problems. Um, but I, I think that uh, at this point, the conversation has gotten mature enough to realize that hierarchies do still have some usage. Uh, this is why why they have been used for so long is because they do actually offer some key benefits. We just have to be very cognizant of the dangers. But one of the benefits of hierarchies is accountability, is the ability to say, uh, it really, the, the buck actually stops with you. You are the person who is responsible for ensuring the safety of such and such thing, whether we're talking about a sex party or whether we're talking about 
you know, our introductory ritual to become an Aratean is to walk through fire. And we do that in a safe manner, but there is room for physical danger involved in that activity. And so uh, having someone who's directly responsible to say, you know, uh, it's on you if this goes wrong. And so you will now put in the work to make sure that it doesn't go wrong because you don't want it to fall on you. Um, that's actually a really important thing. And so, so I think that this, that same principle holds true for, let's just say that there was an incident of sexual abuse within the community, um, whether or not that involved people in leadership positions, or if it was just amongst members of the community, uh, having a hierarchy where we can hold people accountable and say, uh, you really are the one that's going to pay the price for this. You know, you know, you agreed to be accountable when you took on this position. Um, you're the one that has to figure out the solution here. Um, it, it can't necessarily prevent all instances of problems, but but I think it, I think it does a lot to prevent many because because people are taking more responsibility when they know that they're going to be held accountable. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of what I would say. The point boils down to is that knowing that I will be held accountable motivates me to behave responsibly. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think hierarchy is useful. Um, I guess I'm just curious about like, I think two things that have been very helpful for the sex positive community and like, not that it's, you know, there's no silver bullet, there's, there's problems everywhere. But again, having a, a designated um, process for reporting consent violations. And then another thing that just occurred to me as you were talking is the biggest problem with hierarchy is that the people at the top become unaccountable. And so what um, some of our organizations did was they used people in other organizations that were tenuously tied to the organization as like, um, accountability measure. So they would talk to people down in the hierarchy about how the people performing higher in the hierarchy are doing um, to get an idea of like how, and, and that's what the Southern Baptist Convention is dealing with right now. Like they've brought in outsiders to audit them and to, and that's, you know, why we're learning about this stuff. So I was just curious if there are, um, yeah, I think that third-party validation is a really important tool. You know, I guess we don't have anything that's explicitly set up for that at the moment, but uh, I think that's a good idea and something that we should, um, I, I think it's something that we would certainly always be open to, but maybe it's something that we should even proactively set some measures in place for that. Um, uh, I think that openness, you know, that, that's one of our 30 aims of Arte. And so, you know, all of the 30 aims of Arte, we believe that they not only apply to individuals, but they also apply to groups of individuals, including institutions, even the assemblage of Arte. So um, openness and transparency, I think, are also really key ways to make sure that uh, people at the top of hierarchies remain accountable. Because you're right, yeah, that when they when they stop being accountable, then the entire benefit of that hierarchy is lost. And now you're only getting the negatives without the benefits of the hierarchy. So um so yeah, so openness and transparency is really critical to, uh, to maintain that accountability. Um, I think that I think I think that being flexible is also important. Uh, part of the reason why our third tenant is what it is, that the intent of the law is a law, is to trust that not all situations are the same. And rather than creating blanket rules for every possible circumstance, um, it's actually 
better in most cases to trust people to be reasonable and that, and that if you trust people to be reasonable, they will be reasonable. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important distinction between like evangelical Christianity and what you're doing is this idea of like people are basically evil. People are like sin nature. It's like not accurate and not helpful. Right. Um, yeah. We're about we to run capacity to be awesome. And we believe totally. that, you know, you just need an opportunity to do that. Um, totally. And so it's constant negative talk of, you know, oh, you're sinful. Oh, right. you know, tell us about, you know, confess your sins. And <laughs> even the concept of sin, you know, these are things that I think really hold us back from being. Totally. Right? Yeah. Um, we're about to run out of time, but I did want to get to the portion where you talk about how you're spreading the word. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I do believe that that is an important part of uh, who we are and ultimately what makes us different from other sort of secular kind of churches or even even churches that are sort of like quasi-secular, say, Unitarian Universalist. And I want to be very clear that um, we really don't see ourselves as being in competition with any of these other you know, organizations or movements. We really see ourselves as allies. You know, if you, you as a better fit for someone, great. You know, please, you know, do what is good for you. That's what we care about is having people be great. But I do think that um, that the nature of our religious structure and having um, an explicit uh, principle of sharing our ideas with each with each with others with with doing some amount of proselytizing. Hopefully, we do it less annoyingly than say you know Mormons do. Um, but but having that actually be a thing that we intend to do, uh, that we intend to grow um, and to share our message. This is important because we're not just trying to better ourselves. We are actually trying to better the whole world. Um, going back to, you know, that found that history story of how I came up with this, you know, what motivated me to do this. It was based off of seeing the problems with the United States. And, and you know, I think that those problems have spilled over and, um, you know, there are problems in the entire world uh, with how we're living. We're facing serious existential threats, things like climate crisis and AI risks and nuclear war and biological war and, um, you know, even non-man-made risks, you know, solar flares and all, all kinds of things. There's, there's real risks to humanity, uh, both at a biological level and at a civilizational level. If we're going to literally save the planet, and I know that that's kind of melodramatic to say, but if, if we're going to save the planet from these risks, we will need to actually create some unified movement on some of these key issues. Um, it's not good enough to just be a good person. And I know that that's tough news to hear, but it's not good enough to just be a good person. You have to also help other people be good people too. And uh, we believe that having a religious framework actually makes this much, much easier to accomplish. Um, and I recognize that again, for a lot of us who have religious trauma in our backgrounds, that this is, this is hard, um, that it, what I'm asking people to do is not easy. But I would ask people to frame it as we're we're asking for people to give up just a thimbleful of their independence in order to achieve a bucket full of change. That um, you could just be a good person on your own. I mean, there's so many awesome people out there who have never heard of Arcanism and probably never will. Uh, you know, uh, we're still a very small movement. You know, we certainly hope to grow on a global scale, but we're we're small. Um, so many people who are being awesome who have never heard of Arcanism. But 
that hasn't saved us yet. You know, it, you know, that person being awesome, that person being awesome, you know, all these people just being good people on their own isn't enough evidently to, to turn the clock back on climate change. Um, it's not enough to make sure that we're proceeding into the next generation of AI driven social media safely. Um, it is not enough apparently to permanently end the threat of nuclear war. Um, we got to get a little bit more organized. We're, we're going to have to sacrifice that teeny bit of our independence to say, oh, I'm not part of anything. Oh, I, I don't associate with movements. You can't put me in a box. Uh, we're going to have to let that go. We're going to have to make a sacrifice and say, actually, I've got an identity. And that identity is a human-centric, human-forward sort of identity of progress, of believing in my fellow human beings and trusting them to make their own decisions. And they'll trust me to make my decisions. Um, but we are going to do this together to actually make real social change. Yeah, I think we have a problem of being, on the one hand, we've got like a very tribalistic, um, top-down, unaccountable, like controlled ways, institutions for coming together. You know, we've got like basically like religion, nationalism, just shitty ways to come together or we have atomization. Um, I think mm -hmm. like in a lot of ways, this is the biggest threat to liberalism is that humans are not evolved to be on our own. We're not evolved to be cosmopolitan. We're not evolved to be without external um, sources of meaning and belonging. And as long as liberalism doesn't provide any alternatives to the existing ways that people are connecting with each other and finding meaning, um, it's not really going to have as much uptake as it could. And these nationalisms and superstitions are going to be, are going to continue to have a huge hold on people. So I think that's the two things I like best about what you're doing are, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're helping to solve loneliness and you're helping to shore up liberalism, um, which I think are like, kind of two of the most important things we could be working on so anyway it was wonderful to meet you and thank you so much for telling me about um, your project and um, I will link to the website in the notes and I'll get this up shortly and I hope you have a great rest of your day great yeah thanks it was wonderful talking with you Kathy awesome Colin bye yeah have fun bye